Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation. What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? My guest this week is Dr. Paula Rochon, founding director of the world's first women's age lab based in Toronto, Canada. If there's one thing most people intrinsically know about older people, is there are more women than men in the mix and that they tend to live longer. But beyond that simple fact, there's been astonishingly little attention paid to either the causes or the consequences of this reality. Paula Rochon's mission and that of the Women's Age Lab is to address that lack. It addresses not only the medical implications, but also the social and human realities behind those numbers in terms of long-term care, community connectedness, and gendered ageism. Paula brings deep experience to the topic as a geriatrician, a senior scientist and research at Women's College Hospital, a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and inaugural chair in geriatric medicine there. In our conversation, we explore the Women's Age Lab's four work pillars and the gendered gaps in our understanding that it is starting to fill. As she points out, with women being the majority of the 1 billion people over the age of 60 in the world, it's time to understand and respond to their needs and priorities. So, Paula Rochon, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So my first question is a kind of obvious one. Why a woman's age lab, which you have founded and direct, and why now? Well, I think aging is something that I've been interested in for you know, a really long time. When I look back on it, I think I was really influenced by my grandparents. My grandfather lived to just about 103, you know, just a, a little bit before his birthday. Wow, a pioneer. <laughs> yeah, especially as a man. And um, my grandmother lived well into her 90s and my parents have also been very healthy. I looked at this and I started to realize that, you know, that wasn't necessarily the experience that everyone had, but I became really interested in what it was that helped them live not just long lives, but really healthy lives. I got interested in from that perspective and that sort of started part some of my medical type training. When I started realizing that everyone wasn't living this sort of long and healthy lives that I had seen with some of my own family members, I also started looking at, you know, where some of the information was coming from. And I remember one of my first research projects that I did, actually when I was at the Harvard School of Public Health, involved looking at literally, you know, many, many, many clinical trials that had been done for drug therapies for the treatment of arthritis. And if you can imagine, arthritis is a condition that's really common in older people. Arthritis is a condition that's really important for women because it's more common in women than men. And as I was reading all of these studies, I started to appreciate that, first off, there weren't very many older people included in these trials. When they were included, they really didn't provide information about those older people. 
So as a result of it, these drugs that were being used to treat arthritis, a condition really common in older people and women, there was just so little information there that was going to be helpful to improve care. That sort of pointed out to me early on, you know, a gap that's there, not just for older people, but in particular for women. I think that was one of the pieces that kind of got me interested. It's kind of a double whammy, you know, that uh, for a long time we were fighting to get women into clinical trials, and then we were fighting to get older people into clinical trials. When was that legislated? It was pretty recent, the older people. Yeah, the older people is very recently. It's just in the last couple of years that they were required to be in federally funded trials in the United States. Women were a little bit earlier, but again, it's the intersection of the two that seems to be missing. And so that just became clear to me that that was an issue back then when it was early in my training. And it's really an issue that has not gone away. And then when you think about, you're asking me why Women's Age Lab, why now? I mean, there's the aging of the population. We're about to be a super age society. All of these pieces, differences between women and men, I find it really shocking that there hasn't been anyone who's created a research center focusing on older women in the world yet. To think that we're the first, or at least nobody's told us otherwise, I think that's pretty amazing given the importance, I think, of older people and women in particular to our society. And given that, as I learned from you, women are the majority of older people. Yes, the majority of the older people and with increasing age, they become even more the majority. I want to dig a little bit deeper because I've been spending a lot of my time trying to research gender differences in aging and can't find all that much. So do women age differently than men? And if yes, how? What are the big chapters of those differences? So I think this is a really important question when you think about women and how they may age in a different way than men. So I think the answer is a little bit yes and no. In some ways, there are not necessarily differences, but in other ways, there are differences. So one of the big ones that we talk about a lot is that women live longer than men. So I think that's been shown just about in many different places, something that we see over and over again. Do we have any idea yet why? Has that been explained? Not sure why. The other pieces to the puzzle, so to speak, is that women have more chronic conditions than men. So while women live longer, they also live with more chronic conditions. So very important difference there. We also see when you think about differences between women and men, it sometimes relates to some things that are predominantly conditions that occur in women and some conditions that are predominantly things that occur in men. And then there's others that only occur in women, only occur in men for the most part. And can you give us a few examples? Because that's interesting, right? Well, like, for example, if you're thinking about some of the cancers, like something like prostate cancer, for example, that would be something you would associate with men, right? So you have things like that. Then you have other things that, for example, can occur more commonly in women than men. And one of those might be something like, for example, breast cancer. It could occur in men, but it's much more common in women. Another condition like that might be something like arthritis, much more common in women than men. But there's other conditions too, where women and men experience the same things, but perhaps experience it in different ways or can experience it in different ways. And so an example there that people talk about a lot might be heart disease, for example. While women can present with the classic symptoms of a man with a heart attack, as an example, 
They also may present in somewhat different ways. The classic thing is you talk about crushing chest pain, you know, radiating down the arm, but could be something a bit more subtle, like it could be just feeling unwell or nausea or other kinds of things that people may not recognize as well as being associated. So these are potentially examples of where there's some things that are predominantly occur in women or men and some that are predominantly in either women or men and then a combination. I know that issue of heart disease. I first learned about that a couple of decades ago and many people sounded the alarm. Has that spread that understanding that women and men might present differently or are women that's still the number one killer of women heart disease is it not yes well I think that's where like you've mentioned it right it's something that's now on people's radar and people are talking about it but I think it's an example of a much bigger issue we're aware of this or we're talking about it now in heart disease which is great not everyone but people are talking about it in heart disease But one of the big things I think we have to think about is we should be talking about this in all conditions. If we purposely made the point of thinking about, well, what are the differences between women and men? And thinking about how do we make sure that we collect data, which is disaggregated by sex and age, I think you would start to see differences that maybe you might already be thinking about, like in heart disease, But I think you might also see things that maybe you didn't expect at all. And we don't really know because we haven't been collecting that information. Have we not been collecting it or are we not disaggregating? I'm always struck by this push for disaggregating in almost every field I work in. What's the resistance? I'm surely we have the data. Women have now been in these clinics or are they still naturally not participating in these trials in equal numbers? Where is the issue? I think it is even when people are in these trials. It's not just trials. It's any kind of research that you might be doing, right? It could be using administrative data or or all sorts of different ways of collecting information. Even when the women are there, I think one of the biggest issues going forward is the idea of reporting the information. For example, it may be reported for women and men, or it may be reported for age groups, but you often don't see kind of the intersection of women and men. And so therefore, you often miss out on, for example, older people. So what are the differences between older women and older men that might otherwise go missed? So this is a good explanation for why we need a women's age lab. How are you organized? What are the pillars of focus that you have and how did you choose them? So as you can imagine, when we started thinking about women's age lab and the importance of thinking about older women, we were already going from looking at aging and sort of focusing in on sort of the women component. So we were already narrowing things down. But as we've learned, and as I'm sure you're aware, the more you think about it, this is still vast. You're thinking about the differences between women and men by age, and you think about how it probably impacts just about everything we do. It's a huge area. So we had to kind of hone it down into a couple of pieces. And one of the ways we did it is we were focusing on some of the areas where we already were developing expertise in areas that we had related to some of our own science in this area as a starting point. But we also picked areas that we thought were really important and areas that really we thought mattered in a variety of different ways. So we ended up with four areas of focus that we're looking at. So one of these issues focuses on the idea of thinking about aging in place and how do you reimagine aging in place and think about things like long-term care. You know, that's an issue that 
affects a, a really small percentage of the population, but one that is really important and important for women. Is that kind of care, again, dominated by, I heard a statistic the other day that 70% of men die married and 70% of women die single, which I imagine then causes them to go into care in far greater numbers. Is that true? Well, I think that's one of the things that you brought up that people don't really sort of fully appreciate. Long-term care or nursing home care, which is what you, you might call it in the United States, is a place that is where there are predominantly women. So people think about it as older people, but they don't really register the fact that it's predominantly women. So certainly in Canada, it's like more than 60%, sometimes 70% or more of people in long-term care homes are women. Who've taken care of their spouses at home, but then when they are themselves end of life, they end up in long-term care because nobody's there to take care of them. I think that relates to maybe some of the gender-related issues too, right? Like women traditionally have been in caregiving roles and perhaps when they need care, there might not be somebody there to provide it for them. But also you think socially, women tend to often marry somebody who's older than them. And we've also said that women tend to outlive a spouse. It's like we create this huge gender gap at the end of life that we didn't really design or think about much. Yes. Our daughters should marry men younger than them as part of the outtake. Well, I guess it's these sort of social things that you don't really think about, but it really does play into something like long-term care. And also, as we're saying, how do you sort of focus on reimagining aging in place? So yes, some people need to be in long-term care. And I worked in long-term care for about um, 15 years in an academic long-term care organization. So I saw firsthand the value of long-term care and how it could be sort of life-saving for people. But I also recognize that many older people don't want to be in long-term care or in nursing homes and would want to stay in their own homes if that's at all possible. So it's really important on sort of the flip side of that is to think about how can we reimagine the way we provide care so that people can stay in their homes if that's what they want wherever possible. That also relates to differences between women and men and is important for women who make up the majority of the older population. You know, how do we support them and what are their particular needs in being able to stay in their home? And I've got a mum in uh, Canada, so I know just how actually better than many countries Canada has been in providing some accompaniment to staying in place and receiving care and support at home. I've been blown away by some of the support that she received. It's so important to have that sort of in-home kind of support. You know, it's just invaluable and something that we clearly need to build on more. So that's one of the areas, which you can imagine is a big area. Another one is the idea of optimizing therapies, optimizing the drugs that people take. As we sort of said earlier on, this is really important for women. Women take more drug therapies than men often as a result of having more chronic conditions. And when you have more chronic conditions, you may need additional drug therapies to manage those conditions. But it's also interesting to know that women uh, relative to men are more at risk of receiving older women what might be considered inappropriate drug therapies. And so that may put them more at risk for problems. And also women are more likely than men to develop drug-related adverse events. So it's really important. And a lot of the work that we've done and work that we've done really for decades now is looking at how do you optimize prescribing for older people, especially women, 
so that you make sure that people are on only the drugs that they need to be on and you make sure that they're at the doses that are appropriate for them. So that's a really important piece of the work that we do. Yes, I've been reading Louise Aronson's uh, rather daunting book that you really begin to understand that a lot of doctors who aren't very attuned to aging generally are prescribing an awful lot of drugs. And as you say, they're describing them for multiple conditions without looking at the interplay, what these drugs are doing. Is that the challenge you're pointing to? That is very much a challenge. I mean, her book is excellent. It tells such amazing stories about what it's like uh, for people to be in these different kinds of circumstances and sort of brought a lot of these issues to the fore, which is great. But she describes a lot of the things that we study. She describes, you know, for example, stories of older people who've experienced drug-related problems related to something that we call prescribing cascades, where a person is given a drug, they develop a new medical condition, which isn't recognized as being related to that drug therapy. And then they get put on another drug to treat that condition and they kind of go down a bit of a a path. A rabbit hole, yeah. A rabbit hole and uh, where they don't need to be. And then they get sick from the drugs or fall over because of this drug interaction. Yeah, and those, those are things that don't need to happen. And so I think that's what a lot of our work in this area is about, is making people aware of some of these issues so that they can take it back, reflect on it, think about how it relates to them and their particular circumstances, and really figure out how we make sure that people, as I say, are only on the drugs that they need to be on, because drugs, of course, are life-saving and important, and we need them. But if you don't need to be on some of those medications, you want to make sure that they're not on them. So this is a big issue. Like, we're talking... These are big issues that we're taking on here. Huge issues. So long-term care and drugs, that's two of the probably biggest industries, actually, that you're taking on as well. There's a huge uh, economic slant to these. They're also aligned, you know, with some of the work that's happening internationally. Everything that we've taken on does align in that regard as well. So, for example, there's a big international initiative right now to have medications without harm. And how do you sort of reduce inappropriate polypharmacy? So our work contributes to that sort of initiative. And we're also, of course, in the decade of healthy aging right now, which is a big international initiative. And so this is putting sort of the women's lens on the work that we're doing there. But you're saying like these two are huge initiatives and clearly not just initiatives that matter to us here, but they matter on an international level. The third area that we're focusing on of the four that we have in uh, Women's Age Lab is focusing on the idea of promoting social connections. So as you are, I'm sure, really well aware, things like loneliness are a really big issue. I think also during COVID, we can all relate to this idea of loneliness. You know, maybe it was something that didn't impact us as much before, but I would say certainly everyone has had a taste. (laughs) We all know what being lonely feels like now, yeah. Does that make us more empathetic and more open to um, integrate? Well, and also that an awful lot of older people died during COVID. Do those two things impact our ability to care about this issue and its impact on our elders? Unfortunately, making it more relevant to all of us to sort of see how important it is. But loneliness, you know, people might have thought before that it makes you feel bad and that's not a good thing. But one of the things that people don't really fully appreciate is that loneliness is not only makes you feel bad, it's very bad for your health. When you think about different things that resonate with people as being not good for your health, loneliness. What does it do to you? Like, how does that work? Is it a a mental then body 
combination of different things and, you know, sort of figuring out the sequence of events of how it all works. I'm not entirely sure that we've mapped that out, but people relate it to things like smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is not a good thing. And, you know, if you imagine if you're alone, you're probably not going out, you're not physically active as you would, you're not engaging sort of socially, maybe your nutrition is not so good as it would have been. I mean, it's all of these different things that add up to, you know, risk for things that aren't great happening to you. And one of the things about loneliness is some people are catching on. People have have started talking about it before the pandemic. You know, in the UK, they created a minister of loneliness to address this issue. It's a cross-cutting issue, but particularly for women, older women, and for some of the things that we've already talked about, you know, women tend to outlive a spouse, they're more likely to live alone. When they do live alone, they're more likely to say that they're lonely. I mean, these things are all things that really matter and things that we can really intervene on from a kind of a community perspective. As you sort of mentioned, you know, during the COVID experience where we've all experienced this, irrespective of age, you know, it's really nice to think about what are some of the intergenerational ways that younger people and older people can kind of get together around uh, some of these pieces and come up with different kinds of answers. Intergenerational housing will hopefully map over onto the long-term care issue that we'll find different ways of designing. Well, all of these things, like I mean, I'm, I'm saying them as separate, but you can imagine how they all interrelate, right? The drug piece also relates to loneliness. You may be looking for medications as an option there. It also relates to the idea about uh, reimagining living in place. And if you're lonely, like as you just mentioned, what about opportunities to open up your home to, for example, students who don't have a place to live or would welcome that and creates win-win? Is there a burgeoning movement, creativity, new ideas? Is it emerging? Are we seeing this happening? Are you seeing it happen? Well, I think we are. Like, for example, this idea about reimagining aging in place. And how we can bring people together. I think there's a lot of interest in that. One of the things that we've been working on at Women's Age Lab is to think about what are the opportunities around things like naturally occurring retirement communities. Interesting way of thinking about how do you support older people and especially women to stay in their homes, basically. So naturally occurring retirement communities are, for the most part, are just to sort of help people conceptualize it. Imagine them as big apartment buildings, big, tall apartment buildings, where, you know, maybe 30% or more of the residents are women or older people. And most of those older people would be women. But a lot of people live in those kinds of environments in an urban setting. You know, there's more people living in what we're calling these naturally occurring retirement communities. People estimate than in long-term care or retirement homes combined. So it's a lot of people. So there's a huge opportunity there when you have people living in sort of close proximity. How do you create those social connections to reduce loneliness? You know, how do you put together, for example, groups in apartment buildings where the residents are part of advisory council and think about activities or ways that people might come together? And, you know, maybe they come up with activities like maybe they're going to have communal dining where they get together or... Maybe it's going to be about creating Zoom opportunities for book clubs or when it's doable, doing these things in person. Or what about getting people together to go out walking and, you know, having outdoor activities together? 
Yeah, fascinating. So yeah, people who are naturally together anyways, but who may not even know their neighbors, may not even connect and just use their geographical proximity and leverage it to deliver value and community. That's a kind of an opportunity that potentially comes out of something like this, which is important. And then the fourth area, and again, as we've said, all of these things, we've got them as sort of different pillars of the work that we're doing, but they do kind of connect is the idea about addressing gendered ageism. And maybe that's a bit of a theme that runs through a lot of the pieces that we've been discussing here. Something that I wouldn't have said a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought it was as big an issue as I do believe that it is now. But you hear about ageism, which is discrimination based on age. And then the idea about when you're talking about gendered ageism is also discrimination that's based on sex, more or less, right? So you have people that basically experience it in two ways, you know, not just because you're old, but also often because you're a woman and the discrimination that happens there. And the general complaint of disappearing into invisibility as soon as you turn 50, is that? uh... Yeah. And I mean, I think that's something that we see in so many different ways that when you think about it is something that we just have to raise awareness about get everyone to talk about, you know, just to call it out for what it is. And then to think about how do we do things differently? I mean, it's everything as simple as, for example, gray hair is a reflection of age. And, you know, for a man, maybe that ends up being considered distinguished when you have gray hair. For a woman, you know, women dye their hair. So they kind of address it in different kinds of ways, I guess, sort of mask that process in a way. Another big industry, I'm always aware of the economic, imagine if we stop dyeing our hair, what that might do to the big uh, cosmetic companies that sell us this stuff for literally decades, right? I don't know how often you have to dye your hair, but I assume that's a really good business model, right? Yes, Very true. So these are the pieces that we're looking at at Women's Age Lab. So as I've said, we've gone from looking at aging to focusing on women. And even when we're focusing on just these four areas that are kind of discrete, but clearly overlap, it's huge. And one of the pieces that cuts across through everything we do is the idea of the importance of having what we're calling sex and age disaggregated data so that we can start raising awareness about these differences, looking at differences, making things visible that perhaps we haven't seen before and get people to really talk about it. Hugely important. I have really struggled to find gender differences in aging research. So I'm, I'm dying to be able to read and share some of yours. So four pillars, long-term care, drug treatments, social connectedness, and gendered ageism. When did you launch? You're quite new, I think. Can you measure any impact so far? What are you most pleased with in where you've gotten to? So you're right. We're new. As I think I said, I think we're the first to our knowledge in the world from a research center perspective that's focusing on older women. But we just launched October 1st, so we're not even a year out. We're pioneers and and early on, but in terms of what we've been able to do and what things I'm really proud of is Well, first off, I think it's about raising awareness about these issues, you know, getting out there and talking about it, whether it's in presentations, webinars, something like we're doing here today, you know, just getting people to start thinking about the importance of older women and thinking about how it might relate to them. I mean, I think that's something that's really important. And even though I I sort of, I mentioned that we're focusing on these four areas, but even those areas are huge. 
let alone all of the other pieces are out, that are out there. So one of the things that we've been doing is really looking at how do we build collaborations and how do we build and work with other people who might be doing this kind of work or who are working in any area, but to get them to think about what might this mean for older women, you know, whether it's a respirologist looking at whatever they're doing or a dermatologist looking at whatever they're doing, thinking about how this might be important for older women in particular and to sort of put that lens on the work that they're doing. We've also been working in the, the drug space, thinking about how do we optimize prescribing for older adults. And we've been able to work with researchers in, I think, six different countries now who are also interested in this space because all of these issues are not unique to us. I mean, these are really global issues, might be slightly different in different countries, but often the same. So I think you know, one of the things that we've been doing is being able to create some of these partnerships and to work together on some of these different kinds of pieces and getting that information out there. We've also started to figure out how do we engage locally with communities? So we've traditionally been in sort of the research space, but these issues are not sort of research only issues. These are very much societal issues. How do we get communities engaged, community organizations engaged? Coming up with answers to improve health and well-being for older women with age isn't something that's going to come out of sort of the medical research literature. It has to come, you know, well beyond that. So working with communities, working with, for example, cities and places like that and uh, different groups that are already out there. For example, one of the groups that we've been engaged with have been libraries and just learning about some of the amazing resources that they have there to support older people, you know, whether it's around providing them with books that they might want to have or making materials available to them, sort of the traditional kinds of things, but also volunteer activities that they have, which are really important. And also an interesting role they've taken on to help people with technology. You know, how do they become, just like we're doing today, right? You know, we're sort of meeting in this way by Zoom, but how do we help older people become comfortable with technology if they're not? or even to have access to it, which they may not unnecessarily have. And again, a particular issue for women who may not have sort of grown up in a space where they had to work with technology as an example, or may not always have the financial resources to pay for technology, which can be awfully expensive. So that's a piece that's important. Can I hope that you are the first, but certainly not the last? Are you imagining that we're going to start seeing women's age labs? pop up in some of the countries that you're currently working with? That would be wonderful if we got more and more people to either, you know, join in however they could sort of see themselves doing that. But I think we want everyone to kind of think the same way, to sort of ask the question, you know, what about women? What about older women? Because in so many ways, first off, older people aren't being considered. And when they are, we're not thinking specifically about women and you're just missing out so much. So if we could find ways to get other people in other countries thinking about that as well and sort of working on whatever facet they might want to do, I think that would be absolutely amazing. There's lots to do. Let me ask you a personal question in conclusion. Did you ever think that you would be at whatever age you are now running a woman's age lab or has this been a long-term dream? In some ways, it has been a bit of a, a long-term dream. I think since early on in my career, you know, when I started getting interested in aging and then starting seeing some of the inequities coming up, you know, where there wasn't information 
coming forward about, first off, I was seeing older people in general. Through my experience, especially I would say working in long-term care in an academic long-term care home as a researcher and clinician for you know many years, over and over again, I would see sort of differences between older women and men and think, you know, where's the information to help guide people in this? So it's come up over and over again in the work that I've done, you know, sort of looking at the importance of looking at these differences, trying to get people to think about this and all the work that they've done. You know, as a woman myself, thinking about how this is something that's so important and something that we need to do. One of the things that really sort of strikes me is, despite the fact that we're all aging, depending on how you want to look at old, I mean, WHO is talking about people over the age of 60. There's a billion people now in the world in that category, and the majority of them are women. There's a huge need out there. This has been something that's been on my radar sort of increasingly over the years as something that's really important. And so if I am able to make a contribution in some way, and if we are able to make a contribution, you know, I think this is an area focusing on older women is kind of like a dream opportunity to try to make this happen. So you're kind of my archetype of older professional women actually reaching their career peaks and maximum impact at this age and stage, right? That's very true. I mean, as somebody who's now classified in that older age group, you know, over the age of 60, there's so many, I think, women out there who are starting to do some really interesting pieces at that stage of their life. And that's something we need to think about as well. How do you support that? So one last piece of advice for our listeners, how should they prepare for their own or their wives, mothers, uh, daughters aging eventually? What, if you had just one thing that you'd like to leave them with to think about or do, what would it be? Well, one of the things I think that's really important to think that aging isn't something that's sort of just out there and impacting everyone around you. I mean, aging, and when you think about older women, is something that impacts all of us. I mean, all of us are aging. At some point, you know, as women, we're going to be in that category, but it impacts other people around you, you know, whether it's someone in your family, if it's your mother, if it's somebody else around you. Aging is impacting all of us. And so I think people have to kind of think about that and get away from the idea of thinking of it as being something siloed and something that's uh, somewhere else. It's something that directly impacts all of us. So I, I think that's something that we all need to take away and think about. I think we desperately fear it, avoid it, ignore it quite intentionally, right? So this notion of bringing it in is going to be a, a big job. Paula, I'm delighted you're taking it on. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with me, Paula Rochon of the Women's Age Lab. Will, if people want to reach out or connect with you, where should they go and how will they find you? They can email us at Women's Age Lab or you could go to our website as a starting point. Terrific. And we'll put all of those links into the podcast notes. Thanks so much for being with us. I look forward to future research, future conversations. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives, where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries.